So on page eight of your zines, um, our gospel reading is John 20, um, all of it. Um, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who, who Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I seal the nail marks, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you have may, life, may have life in his name. This is the word of God. Shall I pray and then we'll explore this passage together. Let me pray. Father, lift us up and give us joy, give us peace, give us 
hope, uh, a particular hope, not just any hope, a substantial hope, not just wishful thinking, the kind of hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We claim here tonight that the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within us now. Um, change our lives, transform them for Christ's sake. Amen. God heard that prayer. He hears those prayers. Okay, here we go. Job. Heard, heard of that name? Job. Uh, over 3,000 years ago, suffered, and um, there's a book named after him, which is, amongst other things, about suffering. And right in the middle of the book, in the middle of his suffering, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and though the body be destroyed, he says, though the body be destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Now he said that right in the middle of his suffering, 3,000 years ago. Now that's hope. And I want to say tonight that I know that same hope. And let me tell you how I know that hope. John chapter 20, verse 1. Let me explore a few things from this text. Here's how I know. Because early on the first day of the week, at Sunday, by the way, while it was still dark before dawn, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she can only assume robbers. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, John, who wrote the epistle, the letter, the, the gospel. And she said to Peter and to John, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but John's account of the resurrection is peppered with the theme of an empty tomb. Where is he? You know, where have they taken him? Someone's taken him. Someone's taken the body. Peter and John uh, then run to the tomb, verse 3. We find out that John is faster than Peter. He outruns him. But the, John hesitates, verse 4. Peter runs past him, never hesitates. He runs first, verse 6. He runs straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. Verse 8, finally the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first. Such detail, by the way. Why do you include such detail? When he reached the tomb first, he then goes inside, joins Peter inside the tomb, and he saw and believed. They still do not understand from Jewish scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. The only thing I want to say about that, David, is it's interesting right there in the gospel you've got this um, heart action. I, I'm, I'm believing. I don't know, we don't quite know exactly what he believed. At least that he's not there anymore. And he does it ahead of understanding. And I take it that a lot of people, their understanding follows their decision to believe. There's something about their hearts that say, I believe this, and then it takes them some years to understand from Scripture why certain things have to be the case. And in this case, they didn't understand that he had to rise from the dead. The Jewish Scripture said it. And I know this, by the way, because I've interacted with rabbis when I lived, lived in New York City, and I was uh, on campus at NYU doing work, and I knew the chaplain, to the, the Jewish chaplain of the campus of uh, New York University, 
And he and I discussed these matters together, in particular Isaiah 25 that we began our service with today. You know, what is it that God is going to do to remove death forever? And how does that come through a Messiah? We're going to talk about that in just a moment's time. But uh, the idea that he had to rise from the dead means that there's no other way that God could save the world or me. This evening I have an impossible task to convey the implications of Easter Day. Personally, I'll be satisfied if you just had a taste. And that taste led to some wonder and possibility. And then that wonder led to repentance, maybe even ahead of understanding. And that repentance led to, leads to transformed lives. And in particular, being able to say with the Apostle Paul from Colossians that I've been raised with Christ. That's my new identity. One writer said of Easter Day, it's not easy to convey a sense of wonder, let alone resurrection wonder, to anyone. You know, try explaining your wonderful holiday to someone. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But they weren't there. He writes, it's in the very nature of wonder to catch us off guard, to circumvent expectations and assumptions. Wonder, he writes, can't be packaged and it can't be worked up. I can't whip it up in you. I'm not going to try. It requires, he writes, some sense of being there and some sense of engagement. So let's go there to that garden tomb and engage. What happened? Well, in that garden tomb that morning, after a bruising Friday of frenzied violence, a betrayal of a, with a, a friend with a kiss, a farcical show of abusive power to kangaroo court, a deep display of human arrogance, Jesus went to a bloody Roman cross and the scriptures say he breathed his last breath. People die all the time, and here's another death. It's an ugly one. A Roman execution, there's nothing much uglier. But they took his body down, laid him in the tomb, buried dead cold. And with the stone rolled over the entrance of the tomb, all the messianic hopes of the disciples have been dashed, all their hopes gone. But in the quiet hours before dawn on Easter morning, with no one watching, save Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father raised the eternal Son from the dead in his body. Not a ghost. Thank you. From the grave, the God of heaven and earth lifted the Messiah out of the mire of death. Now, some of you reject that outright. You're like, um, impossible, incredulous. We'll come to that in a moment. I don't think I could persuade you necessarily, but I've got a few thoughts. Many, though, do have a suspicion that something huge happened on that day. I think lots of Australians will enjoy a long weekend and ignore the event as irrelevant at best. Some will say it's dangerous, and it was dangerous. Thousands Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands were killed by Roman authorities until Rome yielded. It took 400 years, you know. Millions died, you know, thrown to lions for their 
rock-solid belief that Jesus had risen from the dead. So they obviously didn't believe it was a lie. I'm pretty sure lots of people think that something happened on that day. And I'm absolutely sure that millions, including me, say that hope rises because of what happened in that garden tomb. From the ashes of suffering, hope rises, from the fog of human desires, I'll talk about that in a moment, and from death itself. So what's the message of Easter? Well, how about this? God made this world, he wants it back. Jesus is now Lord, and that means all the despots, dictators, prime ministers, presidents who've been thinking they're in charge, or the mob in democracy, they're not in charge. Jesus Christ is currently Lord. That's the message of Easter, or at least one way to look at it. Here's another one. God made you. He knit you together in his mother's womb, in your mother's womb. He wants you back. He's tired of you running. How about this one? Another way to look at Easter. Life is now the inevitable reality on the planet and not death. Hope is the thing and not despair. The future of those in Christ is always now up in resurrection and not down into death. That means death, which, you know, for those who are honest, is the ultimate reality of every human... Well, it feels like it is. But the resurrection says it's no longer the ultimate reality. And in fact, I could say now, I will be able to say, I, you know, I can't guarantee how I'll die, but I can say now that even on my deathbed, I can say the best is yet to come. Do you get that? I said that once at a um, Easter Day service, and this lady said, I love how positive you were. The best is yet to come, I believe that. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm saying, riddle with cancer. Like, it's not about um, the job's coming, love is arriving on the horizon. I'm saying, riddle with cancer. I'll be able to say a resurrection speaks to the suffering and answers the question of death. That's what Easter is about. What's interesting to me is that all of this comes with an empty tomb in a quiet garden. This is for the photographers or the artists among us. What's interesting is that this hope comes in the negative space, which is not always easy to see. Where there should have been something, a dead body, there is now no dead body. You see that, don't you? The negative space there. What, there should have been death, there was now life. There should have been despair, there is now hope. Where there should have been the stench of death, the disciples found the aroma of life. No dead body, the negative space, no dead body means that the hope of the world has risen from the dead. And that means that, good news, no government, no manifesto, no program, no curriculum, no medical breakthrough, no movement, no change.org petition, no election, despite how important those things are in civic life, none of them can be the ultimate hope of the world. Not if, by the way, you say the second law of thermodynamics is necessarily and always true. That is, decay is the ultimate reality. If you say that, then you can only say the only way is down, baby. You have to say it. Genuine scientists, 
who don't believe in God or therefore a, 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 the possibility of the impossible, the New Testament says there's one hope and that's Jesus Christ in me, the hope of glory. And this was always God's plan. He had to rise from the dead. Now I want to say that there are ways to grasp the nature of the doctrine of resurrection in nature and the Apostle Paul gives us one in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, consider a seed. Um, I went to the Easter show yesterday and I got up this morning and I said to my wife, do we have any seeds in the house? And she said, I've got one, it's a cotton seed. I picked it up yesterday. I said, can you get the seeds out? Firstly, they're hard to get out. Um, secondly, if I just held up a seed, you wouldn't see it. Actually, that's not true this morning. But maybe tonight you'd see it. Seeds are small and they are often sort of brown, a sort of dead brown, and they're hard, and quite, fr- I can't even see it, quite frankly, they look like little rocks. But if you told me, before I'd seen a flower grow or a plant come out of earth, if you told me that you'd take this little dead rock-looking thing, and somehow it had in it the, all the power and DNA and ingredients to create a flower, or a tree. If you told me that you buried this thing into the ground, treated though it's like it's dead, if you told me that it would rise as a plant and I hadn't seen plants rise, I would just say to you, you're lying. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. You've got to bury a seed into the ground before it um, becomes alive again. Or an egg is another interesting possibility. Again, I went to the Easter show. An egg is closed and dark on the inside, and without breaking it, uh, you can't get inside of it. Um, It's a little bit like a tomb on one level. But I was at the Easter show with the incubator, and crack, 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 you know, little beaks come out, and then boom, out, out comes these beautiful, fluffy little chicks. I mean, it's a miracle, really, if you think about it. I mean, I've seen it before, and so I don't think it's a miracle. I think it's remarkable, but... You know, it's happened before, but in the same way that you think, how could this come out of that? So, resurrection happens out of death. The egg contains a thing you wouldn't believe if you hadn't seen a chick come out of a, an egg in the past. Or a cocoon is another example. If you told me that a fat, weird caterpillar would create a little tomb around itself and then come out a butterfly before I'd observed it, I'd also say you were lying. Or perhaps best of all, the womb. Jesus uses this in John 16. Paul uses it in Romans 8. A womb, right? One of my favorite cartoons is two twins in a womb. One of them says to the other, don't be stupid. Who ever heard of life after birth? I mean, just because twins in a womb haven't experienced life outside the womb doesn't mean that life outside the womb doesn't exist. In other words, it's just philosophy 101, namely, that just because you haven't experienced something, just because it's not yet observable, doesn't mean that it can't be true. Now, don't get me wrong, all those four things are observable now. Science can monitor them, repeatable experiments, all that. Whereas resurrection, at least Jesus' resurrection, has happened only once, therefore it's subject to history, not science. The resurrection has happened only once, the way it will be in the future has only happened once in the past. That it has happened once doesn't make it impossible. And not, of course, if there is a God who promised it in the Jewish scriptures and can do it. There were people in Jesus' day that didn't believe in resurrection. They were called Sadducees. Jesus speaks to them in Matthew chapter 20. They gave sort of 
joke answers to anybody who believed in resurrection, like Bart Simpson with his Sunday school teachers. They're like, yeah, right, no one believes in that. Jesus says to the Sadducees, you are in error, you're wrong, because you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know that God said he'd do it, Isaiah 25, that's the way we began our service today, nor the power of God. That is, if there is a God, then it's not just subject to the laws of nature. If there is a God, then the impossible is not impossible, it's possible. That's why Paul says to skeptics in Acts chapter 26, why should any of you consider it incredible if God raises the dead? In other words, if there is no God, there is no resurrection. There can't be. But if there is a God, then resurrection is indeed possible. I've often wondered why Christianity survives and has survived for thousands of years despite predictions of its impending death by elite pundits who feel like they can speak for the whole. Christianity is dying, it's dying, it's dying. I got an interview once on Channel 7, it was the sunrise on the weekend, so no one was watching except for my mum. And um, you know, the, the guy said, how come Christianity is dying? And I'm like, no, no, there are more people at church this Sunday than there will be at football games. Yeah, but the pundits always say Christianity is dead and dying. They, of course, can't speak for the whole, and they fail to understand Africa and China and South America. And indeed, our own society, where Christian faith is actually on the rise and not floundering like they say. One answer could be, uh, well, because God's in it. That's why Christianity has survived. Another one could be because people discover the meaning of divine love or the power of community. But another answer is that Christianity survives because it's one of the few words that gives a plausible answer to the question of suffering without denying suffering, minimising suffering, attempting to escape suffering by the pursuit of pleasure. The Christian gospel answers the vexing question of suffering without living in contradiction to it. I've got suffering over here, but I'm going to contradict it by this thought over here. You know, when Monty Python had all those people on the cross singing, always look on the bright side of life, they're mocking you. Monty Python was mocking us. You can't deal with suffering just by contradicting it. Suffering is inevitable and we have to chart a meaningful path through it. And it can't just be holidays and sex without covenant and alcohol without restraint and comfort without uh, service and love. I believe that our view of suffering in our society produces a soft generation. So three points to make in conclusion. Because I find in Jesus Christ I have hope rising out of that garden tomb. Because I believe that Jesus came to, and these points are on page 11 of your, of your zine, he came to rise above the suffering, but he did it in the thick of suffering. Jesus' death was horrible. All suffering is horrible, two degrees. But the heart of the Christian message is that Jesus charted a path into and through suffering. The heart of the Christian message is Christ on the cross and Christ alive again. That means here's my hope. I love this thought. The Christian gospel at its very heart is that God came, he saw, he suffered. And then he conquered the true enemy, death itself. If you heard me say he came, he saw, he conquered, well, that, 
of course, was Rome, and Rome did not rise from the dead, and Rome does not love you. He came, he saw, God, came, God saw, God suffered. He charts a meaningful path through it, and this gives people hope. G.K. Chesterton wrote in the 19th century to those who pronounced the death of Christianity, he wrote, Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it has a God who knows his way out of the grave. The writer of Hebrews says to Christians who suffer, it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Jesus charts a path through suffering. Secondly, he came to rise above all the frenzied fog of desires, and he did that in the thick of desires. The death of Jesus is a result of uber-desire, right? Um, fear, um, a passion to protect patch, um, leaders thinking Jesus is undermining their authority, fear that the Romans would come and destroy the temple and the nation, and so they offer up Jesus as a sacrifice. But it's desire that makes them do it. But the death of Jesus means that Jesus comes to deal with my desires and get above them. The epistle that's set in the Book of Common Prayer for Easter Day is Colossians 3, which is perhaps something for you to ponder on tonight on page 10 of your orders of service, where the Apostle Paul says, if you have this new identity of being in Christ and you are raised with Christ, and if you're raised with Christ with this new identity, then... Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. You're there, so allow your desires to be shaped by him. Set your minds on things above and not on things below, on earthly things. And the reason why is that you died. You're already dead. And your life is now hid with Christ in God. I love that concept, by the way. I'm already dead. Got nothing more to protect. You know, because if you haven't already... Look, I know this is an old reference here, but in the um, TV show uh, Band of Brothers, which is a uh, remarkable 12-part show about soldiers in the Second World War, and they're all afraid for their lives. And there's one particular character that always goes in past them into the fight. So they're all standing, you know, worried. And there's one guy that just walks right past with a gun. You don't even see him, but you hear these bullets, and then he comes back with blood on him, lights up a cigarette, and then he goes back into the battle and comes back out and comes... And all the way through, they're asking, how do you do that? You know, how do you deal with your fears like that? And later on, he comes in and he smokes a cigarette. And he says, there's only one way to deal with your fears. You've got to know that you're already dead. A person who's in Christ says, Jesus Christ took me into that tomb with, me, with him to deal with all my sin and all my muck, all my arrogance, my willfulness, my stubbornness. He took it all there into the tomb and he came up the other side and brought me with him. And that's the reason why the Apostle Paul says in verse 5 of Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, leave it in the tomb. Impurity, lust, uber desires, leave them in the tomb. And greed, which is idolatry, love of something other than God, do all that and bring out of the tomb, for example, compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forgiveness and community and love. 
Jesus came to rise above uber desires in the thick of uber desires. He came to took my heart and my sins into that tomb, deal with them there, and bring me back onto the other side of love in him. And thirdly, he came to rise above the death. This is the heart of the Christian message. In the thick of death, Jesus took the right fight up to the right enemy. The enemy isn't government or other people. The enemy isn't, isn't uh, someone at work, people who bother you. The true enemy in the New Testament is death itself, a result of sin. And Jesus took the right fight up to the right enemy. He took on death to defeat it, not with a sword, but with a cross, not with a program or a manifesto, but with an empty tomb, negative space. So what will this mean? Well, first, you're going to have to get the religious locks off your heart first. You've got to stop thinking of yourself as a decent, moral person with Christian values. It's not what it's about. Thank you, Joggy, for talking about that a few moments' time. You can't just go, oh, there's a religious bit, but don't take it too seriously. The compartmentalization, if I can put it this way, the Christmas and Easter mindset. I promise you there's no joy in that. There's no joy that you are pursuing that you'll find by having religious flocks on your heart. My wife's a smart cookie and a beautiful writer, and uh, she wrote, she was published this week in, in, a national, in a national paper. And she, look on page two of your, of your zine, she wrote about uh, Notre Dame, and she's saying, there it goes up in flames, and you could ask yourself the question, does faith go up in flames there? You know, does Jesus die there? You know, is Western society gone? She asked the question, like other treasures in the Notre Dame Cathedral, is the belief in the Lord a relic of another age, temporal and fragile and easily destroyed? She says, yes, on one hand, and no, on the other. Yes, faith can be a relic if it never leaves the walls of a cathedral or a church or the confines of countless figurative altars we deem safe for faith to be expressed. If we confine faith in God to restricted zones and not, do not let it into our lives, then yes, faith is a relic of a time gone by and will eventually disappear. Yes and no, if faith is located in the death and resurrection of Jesus, then it's dependent on a living God who can raise the dead? If God is living, then faith can live and cannot be reduced to a historical artifact. A living faith in Christ seeps into and saturates life and fills it. It resists any will inquiry. It is a living thing that can meet death and destruction and still live. That is the story of Easter. Amen. Let me pray. Father, for those of us who've ever wondered if there's love at the heart of the universe, if love predates creation, we believe that the story of Easter says yes, and we give you praise now. For those of us who've ever wondered if there's forgiveness for sinners like me, the death of Jesus secures it. If we've ever wondered if there's hope that we'd be able to taunt death, even on our deathbeds, we say that the resurrection of Jesus means that death does not get the last word. We say, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? We say that the resurrection means that there is hope, new hope, lasting hope. For those of, you who, those of us who have wondered what will happen at our deaths, we say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the model, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For those of us who wonder if there's any path to this planet 
any Lord above it all, we say that Jesus Christ is Lord, now Messiah, pouring out your love, pouring out your spirit on us, empowering us with the same power that raised Christ from the dead and calling us to repentance, the one who will judge the living and the dead. For those of us who doubt, may we be blessed to believe even without seeing. For those of us who wonder if a single encounter in this moment could change a life, we trust you now. For those of us who have ever wondered whether it's worth obeying you, whether we may as well just eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, we say here tonight that there is one who loves us, who died for us, who will come again to judge. Therefore, what we do in life matters. Our obedience matters. The love matters. For those of us who suffer, may we be like Job, who even through the pain can see a path through it. There's light at the end of the tunnel through the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we can say, along with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives, that though this body be destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.